welcome to Drunk Book Club, where we read books that you might have heard of but didn't read except for this week, when we read books you didn't hear about but know all the authors who did read it. Uh, my name is Vry, they, them, I'm trying to remember to do that now, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hello, she, her. Yay. We have a commission episode this week to start off our new year. It's very exciting. Woo! Thank you so much to Anil who requested that we read 1991's Frisk by Dennis Cooper. Thank you. <laughs> She's a long-time listener and, and always has really interesting ideas for things for us to look at and read. Yeah, I but, can't say this wasn't interesting. Yeah. And it was definitely something that was not on my personal radar before this. And that's honestly kind of surprising given what I study. And the fact that we have done two people who directly quote Cooper as an influence on them, which was uh, Billy Martin, the author of Lost Souls. And, and the Lazarus Heart. Ah, uh, that's true. We've done him twice. And Chuck Palahniuk, the author of Haunted, or better known for Fight Club. <laughs> so, in fact, we've been circling around Cooper for a while now without even realizing it. Before we do anything else, usually we do content warnings a little bit deeper in the show, but this is so heavy that I want to make sure we get that shit up and out front. Yeah, because this is something that some of you might just want to bail on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, even hearing about it secondhand might be intense. I we're going to try not to quote any of the, like, grossest passages, but... It's just, it's a lot. It, it is. just the kind of book it is. Squarely in the gay transgressive fiction genre. Probably one of the most famous names of it yeah so content warning for gore dismemberment pedophilia coprophilia uh, sexual abuse in general necrophilia sadism well yeah. consensual and not consensual sadism so yes masochism general dehumanization i feel like the way the dehumanization is handled could be triggering and upsetting a lot of stuff with bodily fluids. Objectification. Um, I feel like the uh, the pedophilia scene is going to be the most triggering for a lot of folks, but yeah. there's also just... Because everything else that's in this book we've covered to some degree in all of our other stuff, but yeah. boy, that last letter section is rough. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the first scene with Kevin. That's true. That's really upsetting. Yep. Most of this content being from the perspective of the person doing the violation. Which yeah. I think is a pretty important distinction, depiction-wise. Yeah, there's a lot of specifically dehumanization of the biggest victims of this story. It's all very locked into the perspective of someone who is enjoying these acts, rather than a humanization and a, and a working through of traumas. Oh, With and snuff. Yeah, we- yeah, and snuff. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're not gonna, I won't say we're gonna try to keep it light, because that feels disrespectful to the <laughs> yeah. heaviness of the material. Does it, though? Mm, well, we'll get to that. We're also gonna spoil everything. That's true. And we may also spoil some other texts in the in the vicinity of it. We're gonna probably inevitably spoil American Psycho because of reasons. Yeah, and Fight Club. Uh-huh. So if you're not up for that, that's perfectly cool. We'll see you next time. No, we always say to take care of yourselves first most. With that out of the way, please tell them about the thing you inflicted on me to drink this week. <laughs> it wasn't 
wasn't even that bad. You have to admit it wasn't that bad. No, actually, it was quite nice, and I had two. <laughs> yeah. But no. it lo- please go onto our Twitter and look at it. Yeah. So I wanted to create a drink that really sort of encapsulated a lot of the themes of the, the book, as I always do. And Vry had this great suggestion while I was brainstorming. They said it has to be a rimmed drink. I am very angry at myself for this. <laughs> for this good-ass suggestion. Good-ass suggestion. I walked into that one willingly. <laughs> this week's drink looks horrifying, but it's actually just a fun, tart, puckery sort of drink. Yeah, puckery. <laughs> it is a mixture of deep eddy lemon vodka you can substitute any lemon vodka i just chose deep eddy because it's quite good it has a lot of natural ingredients and it looks very yellow sweet and sour mix which i have my own personal recipe but there are also prepackaged versions that are perfectly good with a uh, raspberry syrup rim that is then dipped in crushed oreos i also threw in some little skull and bone candies that i had and uh, finished it off with a splash of Tolon Tolon cream liqueur. So it's sort of what would happen if you combined a brain cocktail with a lemon drop. On the bright side, the Tolon Tolon is a citrus cream liqueur, and it doesn't curdle that badly. So it actually tastes a lot better than it looks. Yeah, you know that horrible sensation where you drink a brain and you can feel the cream liqueur like blooming in your mouth and it feels thick because it's curdled thankfully the tolon tolon doesn't do that like it definitely starts to solidify and, and do that visual curdling but if you chug it all back in, in one motion it doesn't stick on you going down and yeah. it tastes nice and for the um non-alcoholic version i would recommend just getting yourself a nice raspberry lemonade and eating some oreos with it or other sandwich cookies so anyway rimming is a is a motif in this novel <laughs> Dante would have an opinion. People do frequently go ass, ass to, to mouth, mouth in this book. <laughs> That's, that may be the only plot of the book. I am frankly shocked that there is no interspecies erotica in this novel. <laughs> That's like the only thing that's not there. Right? As far as ch- taboo checklist, it's the only thing. Yeah. Well, and just also nothing vaginal. Now, I can't say there's misogyny or racism, but just because... Oh, there's definitely racism. But, but only... All right, there is racism, but we'll get to that specifically. But there's no, like, on-the-page acts of misogyny or racism. There is Orientalism. Because all of the characters are white men. <laughs> they just... Everyone who's not a white man is so irrelevant that they can't be bothered. You know what? That is actually a thing I'm going to say tentatively in favor of this novel compared to American Psycho, the novel, which came out the same year, which, God help me, one of the reviews I read, or not really- Of a, which? Of, it wasn't even really a review. It was just sort of- It was an, like a critical essay. On, on Cooper, talked about how, well, you know, American Psycho was critiqued, but obviously Ellis is just doing a satire of heterosexuality. Okay, Ellis was- at the time, still identifying as bisexual or straight, depending on which interviewer he was talking to. So you can't really say that. Mm-hmm. But in that vein, what I will say is 
the parts of this novel that work do so because Cooper is basically staying in his lane, more or less. (laughs) He is a white cis gay man writing about other white cis gay men, which has its own problems once you sort of step back a few inches. But for this specific genre of queer lit, it is often a problem that other writers stumble over where they kind of throw other marginalized groups onto the pyre. Yeah. In the name of shock value. Yeah, and the Orientalism thing, actually, when we come to it, I want to put a pin in that because I have a very specific other thing I want to bring into conversation. Uh, That was what I was about to ask you because I, because the plot of this novel is so desperately thin, I went in hard on biographical shit because I think that that is the main thing that makes this little 128-page book interesting at all. So would you like to give the readers a basic overview of the plot, or would you like me to tell you the the sad ballad of Dennis Cooper first? Plot. Well, narrative happenings that happen until they stop. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, hand me the book, because I wrote down a timeline. Oh, good. I have requested that Vry use an image of one of the characters from Always Sunny in Philadelphia as the eye catch for this. It may or may not show up depending on what podcatcher you use, but rest assured on our SoundCloud, it's there. (laughs) Because this is the story of Dennis who needs his tools. Yep. Like, I'm sorry if that ruins it for you, but the main character is Dennis. Because this is one of autofiction. Mm-hmm. We are doing some J.G. Ballard shit. Yeah, no, this is autofiction, where you've started with yourself and then bloomed it out into this narrative by the math that I've done based on everything that's happened in the novel. So Dennis is sort of the narrator, but not really, because he frequently dips into everybody else's head. Yeah, it's very uh, floating POV in that way. He was... Born in 1956, when he was 13, a guy named Pete used to let him jerk off to porno mags in the back room of a comic shop. But it wasn't a pedo thing, he would like to, he would like you to know, which in this novel is an important distinction. But the dude does specifically give him some snuff photos. The snuff photos were photos of a guy named Henry. It was faked which we find out because Dennis and his boyfriend Julian fuck Henry in 1974. When he was 17. And he is still alive. For then, Henry was still alive. Henry later died of AIDS. After breaking up with Julian, Dennis fucks Julian's little brother, Kevin, in 1975, when Dennis is 18 and Kevin is... 12 or 13. And then he decides that for some reason, Kevin is too emotionally needy. Just, and too fucked up. I can't deal with this. So he bails on the 12 year old that he fucked. In 1980, when he's 24, he bangs a dude named Samson and goes all angel face on him. Just beats the dude's face in because he's too cute. Also, slasher movies are popular now. In 1984, he banged someone named Finn. In 1986, he almost banged a guy named Joe because he knew about the guy from Reputation and Joe was like his type. And he also heard that Joe was into horror movies and was a masochist, 
But unfortunately, the guy who actually liked Joe, who he kept begging, hook me up with Joe, hook me up with Joe, hook me up with Joe, didn't. And Joe got murdered by a serial killer instead. In 1987, he started fucking a porn star named Pierre and told him all about his violent murder fantasies. Yes, there is a running... The closest thing to a running narrative thread through this is that the snuff photos awaken this paraphilia in in Dennis. And by the time he meets Henry and discovers that they were faked, it's already too set in him. him. Uh-huh. So he has so he has a lot of violent sex and fantasizes about murdering his partners. Well, but most of the sex isn't violent, specifically. The only person he actually hurts during this early time period is Samson. Mm-hmm. And then he, like, verbally freaks Pierre out by telling him how much he wants to murder him. Then he moves to Amsterdam and starts writing letters about all of the people he's murdered in 1989. He writes those letters to Pierre and also to Julian. And then Julian decides, I'm going to come talk to you and I'm going to bring Kevin. Who is now 26. And hot. Unlike his shriveled, dried-up, 33-year-old brother. 33, why can you imagine? Also, there was a serial murder back in 1967 in Joe's neighborhood, and Joe finds a bone, and nobody is alarmed by this. But, like, that's just another thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fetishization of pale, dark-haired white men. A lot of Louise in this novel. So many. And the Dutch. The racist Dutch... (laughs) <laughs> who regularly wear blackface for funsies. <laughs> but like, you know, there are only two things that I can't handle in this world. People who are intolerant of others' cultures. And, and the, the Dutch. Dutch. <laughs> Austin Powers' gold member was bad, but Michael Caine is always good. Every, li- <laughs> listen, every bad movie gets one good line, and that was it. That's great. You haven't even seen it. <laughs> no, but I've seen that scene. <laughs> and it's great. Uh-huh. And then at the end, after it is revealed that, in fact, Dennis... Oh, we're revealing it already. Yeah, I feel like we need that on the table. I feel like we need that shit. That this whole fucking book is a shaggy dog story? Mm-hmm. Because, you see, Dennis made up all of his letters as a catharsis so he doesn't actually murder anybody. And Kevin stays with him at the end. The end. And he doesn't murder Kevin. Yep. And after 128 pages, so the length of an American Girl novel... Of rimming, that's our payoff. The end. The end. How do you feel? Annoyed, mostly. (laughs) Cooper's clearly trying to say something about mediation and depictions of murder and how depictions of murder sink into our cultural consciousness through mass media, but also how they depersonalize violence. But it's weird that the payoff is, and I can't even get my rocks off on murder now. It's taken away my ability to get off on murder. Well, it's funny you say that because his stated intention with the book is that is the difference between fantasizing about something and doing a thing and how fantasies do not have the, the how fantasies are harmless, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Tumblr argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was litigated on Tumblr years ago. Shut up, Twitter. Uh-huh. It is astounding how much of the conversation around Dennis Cooper, particularly in articles circa 2000, early web, I found, are just early Tumblr. 
I don't know if incredible is the word, but it's a lot. As somebody who specifically approaches my critical analysis philosophy through the lens of cultural criticism, I tend to get frustrated with novelists who write works situated and steeped in cultural criticism because they tend to be operating in a very narrow frame of that concept. Expand. I was intending to. My field of study is literature through a cultural criticism lens. And that's a field that not only was invented in the 20th century, but accelerated rapidly during that time period. Because it has its roots in Marxism. Because it would have to. Because it's about how the operation of culture and media intersect and affect one another. But I tend to get frustrated with these very formalist pieces of writing that feel like the author has done a little reading on cultural criticism and has decided to use that as a vehicle. Like, I am going to explain this ethos, and I am the only person who's ever thought of this, of doing this, because they tend to be really samey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they almost all tend to center themselves around the Frankfurt School, which is where Walter, ben- Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno and all of them were teaching back in the 20s. They tend not to engage with the Birmingham School from the 60s or anything that Stuart Hall wrote in the 70s and onwards. So, And I think it's because Benjamin and Adorno are very accessible. Like, they're dense and annoying to read. But Benjamin wrote the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And this work reminds me very strongly of A Visit from the Goon Squad, which also was clearly plugging into Benjamin's work, where we're looking at the horror and the travesty of these reproduced moments that don't have that viscerality and that divorce us from the visceral and separate us through this mediated moment. Because the sort of nugget of Benjamin's essay is that the mass reproduction of a work of art removes it from its cultural context and place and time, or the aura of the work, if you will, which rips away an inherently valuable part of that art. But Benjamin was writing in the 20s, so when he's saying this, He's assuming that all works of art are designed to have this contextual element. And he's not really conceiving of works of art specifically devised for mass reproduction. Or when they are, he sees them as inherently synthetic and as tools to maintain control of the populace rather than as authentically artistic. Which you... Anybody who's seen the Broadway argument knows why that's problematic, but it's an easy argument to grasp. It it is interesting reading that essay, how much I, as somebody who finds cultural context very important, you know, as somebody who writes about anime, it's kind of necessary, still find that essay uh, annoying and blowhardy. Yeah, um, similarly Adorno from the same school 
it had a lot of arguments about why jazz is bad. And like Adorno framed it as because it distracts the worker from the wretchedness of their their work by by encouraging them to just dance and be a silly fool. And it's not real art. But Adorno is not owning to the fact that also he's this he's looking in at black American culture and saying this. And he, he's he's looking in at this black American art form and shitting on it. And he's just looking at the mass culture operations he perceives and attributing it to the the work of of the upper class creating this market and producing it and distributing it without granting that the proletariat can ever create anything for themselves or that the proletariat have the intelligence to bring value select mm-hmm. or interpret which is where the birmingham school came in in the 60s and said no no while the question of who is producing and distributing the art is important also there's the question of how the proletariat is consuming the art and then we get the theory of poaching and hall's theory of reception and poaching is something that probably a lot of people who follow this are at least vaguely aware of because you're probably at least tangentially aware of henry jenkins's work on fandom from his book textual poachers where he just really went off there so Cultural criticism is something that is just an absolute, like, nesting doll of different concepts that keep getting more complex the longer we have mass communication, really. It's especially interesting to talk about because, and I don't know how much we can talk about it here, it, all I can do is know like, that- I've already talked too much about it, but- no. no, I just mean in relation to Cooper specifically, because he is known for doing a lot of- digital media writing like stories and gifts and stuff right so i think it is interesting to but this was so early this was 91 yeah this was his sec he'd done books of poetry and other things like that but this was his second novel what this is a poet i know you're shocked (laughs) thank you for hanging with me through that lecture i think the people who listen to this podcast probably find it interesting if not i'm sorry Especially anybody who's listening to an episode about Dennis Cooper. Which is all to say that you think that Cooper doesn't do cultural context well with this novel? Yeah, because he keeps, like, dipping his toes around it. And he makes a lot of references. Ellis style, almost. Where he's constantly making references to the things that he wants us to know are informing characters' decisions. But he doesn't explore them like he doesn't really look into what they're seeing or how it's operating he just sort of name drops specifically with aids i was more thinking like media influences he references the the river's edge thing river's edge keanu reeves nightmare on elm street freddie the 13th betty davis not even by name no betty davis is like a through line in this but she's always referred to as what's her name so i had to actually check celebrities who died in 1989 that the gays would have cared about to make sure uh-huh. who he was talking about I, I figured it had to be somebody like betty davis but but yeah he just sort of floats over the things he's referencing he expects to have a high context reader 
and he moves as though that exempts him from having a high-context work. You might say that this work is meant to be uh, contextual only to the reader who would be steeped in the knowledge of these things at the time? Yes. And to be fair, I write that way a lot, too. When I write fiction, I tend to have a lot of highly contextual references and things like that, but I tend to write period writing, so I actually have to research those references and figure out which ones work, and I have to second-guess myself a lot. (laughs) I think that kind of writing can be fun, but I agree that here there isn't a lot of there there to back it up. Yeah. Because the characters are all kind of loathsome assholes, except for Kevin, I guess. Who's gone most of the Maybe. Maybe Kevin. Kevin's flat. Yeah, well, Kevin's a cipher. But he tends to just drop in mentions of splatter films and punk and metal and, you know, various film franchises and just sort of nods to, these are things about violence. But he doesn't describe, he doesn't engage. He doesn't ever show these characters actually consuming these works. Their background noise at best. And it frustrates me because we don't see the characters, you know, sitting in the theater and getting this distorted view of violence. It's just sort of in the air. Yeah. Miasma theory style. Yeah. And I think it could have been stronger if we had seen a character like having that moment in the theater and then having a moment where they engage with actual violence and experiencing the difference and the closest we get is in joe's chapter which is probably the strongest chapter in the book like yeah joe's or pierre's i think because they are in effect these standalone short stories almost Mm -hmm. joe is the character who was murdered by a serial killer and his chapter is really interesting because he's a masochist who's just sort of floating through a world full of sadists I want Joe to have a nice time finding a tibia. He in did his... not have a nice time. He did not. He found a tibia in his basement and took it to his doctor to be like, hey, is this human? And the doctor was just like, yep. Which is, I suppose, about the indifference to violence. I guess. But it's really weird because he like goes to the library and meets librarians who don't actually care about what he's looking up, which is weird. Like unhelpful librarians bizarre right and he finds out that there was a murder in his neighborhood that was never solved like a murder and a dismemberment of a guy who looked just like him gosh time prefigures itself yeah but this was in 1967 the year after and then he gets murdered by gary an actor in friday the 13th part six except that there was nobody named gary involved in that movie i looked it up i presume he was lying but the fact that you checked it up I had to check it. Of course you did. I love that about you. No, no, I'm that asshole. I look everything up. That's why I did the math and put a timeline in the front of this fucking book. Again, this is what I love about you. (laughs) Then Pierre's chapter is about his work on an adult film set. And And also as a sex worker. Yes, and sort of the divide between working in adult film post-AIDS and the sort of emotional fraughtness of his time as a sex worker, and which is how he met Dennis. Which I guess is the closest this book comes to authentically exploring that divide between the fantasy and the real and the various violences there, which is probably why it's so good. And yet it's very frustrating because it's still privileging 
Dennis's experience as the consumer of Pierre's trauma and Pierre's existence and Pierre's body and Pierre's distance from his own body that, that Harvey is actively upset by because Pierre's boyfriend is Harvey who is totally upset when Pierre starts like reminiscing about how the best porno he was ever in was when he was sexually assaulted at like 12 or 13 on a super eight loop that was then sold as like summer camp. But like, I looked good. And meanwhile, Pierre is not interested in sex because that's the other thing. This is a very asexual book. I feel like there's an aversive reaction yeah, the way Cooper kind of talks about it in interviews, that strikes me as characteristic of his writing, where he sort of privileges platonic affection as the most interesting and sort of feels sex as normal but uninteresting. Or Which is weird because this is so sunk into sex. Like, most of the book is this litany of sex acts, uh, extremely graphically portrayed. But it's not erotic. Which I guess is kind of interesting, but I don't know that... There's so I... much ass-eating, though. So much. It remind You know what it reminds me of is uh, My Own Private Idaho. Mm. Well, Keanu. Keanu. It's weird that River Phoenix never shows up in this. I think he gets name-dropped in other Cooper books. Okay. Because I was missing him. Uh-huh. I was like... Where is River? Not gonna lie. Well, what you need to know, of course, is that Dennis Cooper did in fact meet Keanu Reeves. When? In the early 90s. <laughs> is this the part where I tell you the sad ballad that's not actually that sad of Dennis Cooper? It's not very sad. It's not very sad. I mean, it's sad. He was a gay man in the who 80s. lived through the 80s and 90s. That's true. There is an inherent sadness in that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to walk a line in talking about this uh, where... I have to talk about both how much I think I kind of respect this dude in some ways and how much I very badly want to punch him in the face. Go to it. So Vry did the heavy um, research lifting here because I've been deep in my exams, which for those of you who don't know what my exams are like, I have to read 50 books and then get grilled on them. For a couple hours. And also submit an essay, which is also a chapter in a book. She's been very busy. It, it's it been eating my brain. So I read a lot of essays. I made <laughs> notes. All right, so. See, you're so professional. I don't take notes. You have a better memory than me. I forget things I said five minutes ago. <sighs> it's very deeply distressing to me. Anyway. Yeah, so. no, I did that whole lecture on the Frankfurt and Birmingham schools, uh extemporaneously uh-huh so i love you <laughs> all right so dennis cooper not born in 1956 he's born in 1953 mm. he is born so younger than my dad but older than my mom yep well that's a wide gap shall we say i mean 51 to 59 his parents are wealthy motherfuckers are they that explains why there's so many rich people in this book doesn't it uh, doesn't a bunch of shit Start to click into place as okay. I say that. Okay, gotcha. So his dad was one of those, I assume, insufferable billionaires because he started out poor and he 
achieved the American dream. So all of you should be able to if you were just as good as me. Yeah. So he's a billionaire who owns this company that made parts for early moonshot stuff for NASA. Hmm. A lot of money in that. Ah, worked with Werner von Braun. Mm. Worked with a lot of paper clippers, huh? No, 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 no. The person who came around to his ha- to young Dennis's house a lot was Walter Breen. Nope. Richard Nixon. They were the trickiest dick. Uh-huh. The trickiest dick of them all. Yeah, they were quite close apparently his his father and Richard Nixon for several years because but I guess his dad had like aspirations toward political office and then dropped that at some point became more liberal started smoking weed and had a falling out with nixon started doing acid come on i mean did he store orgone energy i hope so his parents divorced when he was 13 and the way cooper talks about his parents i feel so weird and prurient about because it goes back and forth a lot depending on the interview so they get divorced when he's 13 uh cooper notes that his mom had a lot of alcoholism issues and was so was pretty brutal to be around when he was young mood i had severe problems with my parents they divorced when i was quite young and the divorce proceedings took forever and my parents did not behave well during that period the fact that parents barely exist in the books is probably because i escaped mine as completely as i could beginning in my teenage years i crashed at friends houses a lot and tried to distance myself from the hell going on in my family home and ever since i've had a very distanced relationship to my family that that actually does explain a lot, because that's one of the things that was frustrating me about Dennis, is that he just sort of coalesces from a vacuum, mm. and I disliked that. And I say this as a person who, you know, couch surfed a lot as a teenager. For uh, not dissimilar reasons. Uh, yeah. yeah, but like, I don't think my writing choice would ever be to eliminate that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But then... In another interview or article that quotes him from the LA Times some years later, so they talk about his dad, he was an advisor to several presidents, Truman and Ford and Eisenhower, and was a really right-wing Republican back then, Cooper explained. He was really close with Nixon for many years. My brother Richard is even named after Nixon. My father was one of the people who drafted the Checkers speech, but finally he had a falling out with Nixon. Now he's a liberal Democrat. Cooper's mother was trained as a concert pianist, but gave it up to marry his father. Oh, now I hate his father even more. I think she regretted it the rest of her life, Cooper said. She's the mom from My Sweet Audrina. I mean. Oh my god. Uh-huh. His mom was the mom from My Sweet Audrina. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to do what I do without her. When I was broke, she gave me money. I never had a real job. I devoted myself to my work. When I started Fuck doing her. well, she became proud of me. She was often embarrassed by what I wrote, but she knew I was serious about writing and working hard, not wasting money. Yeah, see, that's the weird thing. Like, I respect that he had a hard time with his parents, but this is a rich white cis motherfucker who always had his parents' money to fall back on. There's some rent vibes here. She gave me money. Fucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, like, he talks about, I was always distanced from my parents, but I always... My mom gave me money whenever I needed it. Fuck her. I never had a job. That's one of the things that kept frustrating me throughout this book, is all of these people are just sort of wandering around, having bad sex, and none of them actually seem to be in a subsistence situation. Even the people who are 
supposedly subsistent sex workers. Yeah, put a pin in that for just a second because I want to rant about that. Because before I shredded a new one for that, I'm so sorry, Dennis Cooper people. I'm not really. When I was reading up on this dude, what I noticed is that because he's a sort of figurehead in queer outsider fiction, there was sort of a cultural flashpoint around his writing. He got a death threat at one point and canceled a reading. A death threat? I've gotten multiple death threats. Get good, son. (laughs) Like, on the one hand, I feel for him, and on the other hand, in the age of the internet, it's quaint, because I, too, have received death threats. Right. Like, I'm sorry. That's cold, but also get good, son. So, like, all of the modern criticism that is still around about Cooper is very Circle the Wagons-y verging on circle jerky about how he's one of the great American writers and anybody who takes issue with his work just doesn't understand it and is prudish, if kind of thing. Destined to classic status, Los Angeles Times book review, says the print-on-demand book we got. And I do also feel bad for him because... What Frisk was made into a movie in 1995, which we did not watch. Oh, what? <laughs> because it was a pain in the ass to get a hold of, basically. Uh, but, but also, like, how much of this could you actually film? Well, see, that's the thing. They did a reverse American Psycho with the ending. Mm. Where it really was happening? Where they muddy it on purpose. Mm. And so... Co- so, like, American Psycho the book versus American Psycho the film. Mm-hmm. And so Cooper is out here, like, Well, let me read the quote. This is from a Salon article, which was, don't worry, also quite circle jerky in tone. The novel is about the difference between what is possible in one's fantasy life and what is possible in one's real life, Cooper wrote. It tries in various ways to seduce the reader into believing a series of murders are real, then announces itself as a fiction, hopefully leaving readers responsible for whatever pleasure they took in believing the murders were real. Yawn. I question very strongly the the decision in the film to leave the question of whether the murders were real or not up in the air. Murder is only erotic in the imagination, if at all. By choosing to represent only the surface of my novel, by using my novel to eroticize sadistic sexual acts against innocent people in an uncomplex way... The film perpetuates a common simplistic reading of my work, and this concerns me. Though the filmmakers promised to read Cooper's statement after the film screening in San Francisco, they reneged. He has since disavowed it. I keep finding these kernels in my research that give me some kind of glimmer. Like, he talks a lot about, in a couple of interviews, about how part of the reason he writes about teenagers in basically all of his novels is that he's really frustrated by the gay community's specifically the co- youth fetishism yeah yeah no and then that comes through here the omnipresent youth fetishism really comes through here but i don't really get where he's problematizing it yeah i think that's sort of a stumbling block like it feels like he's portraying but not necessarily vi- engaging with the questioning act Mm -hmm. yeah he talks about it as just being like putting it all out there and you know let the reader sort it out kind of thing which but i don't trust the readers no i don't fucking trust the readers readers are dumb motherfuckers you're not dumb but a lot of times in my experience you have to be like 10 times as blatant as you think it is a better accomplishment than ellis pulled off that he does the twist that makes American Psycho the film so wonderful mm-hmm. at the end of this book. Yeah, because Mary Heron really leaned into that. 
mm-hmm. and leaned into making Bateman a clown. Gosh, now I'm thinking of how Heron would have handled Frisk. That would have been pretty interesting. Although, but but Heron, although Heron's handling of masculinity is not great. Yeah, because um, like I love American Psycho because she has such pathos but, for the women. But like, I the shot victims. Andy Warhol is a problem. Is rough. Heron is best left to projects that involve women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing, the other kind of interesting quote was just as somebody, I like cultural critique. I think it is an extremely valuable form of criticism. I mean, it's your job. It is. I'm mostly a self-taught critic and a lot of what I was available when I was pulling myself together was formalist work. So mm. it's kind of a backbone of how I approach texts. And so hearing him talk about, you know, this dude just is a formalist. That's what he does. All of his books are writing exercises, more or less. And so when he talks about Frisk as, I intended this to be like a dismembered corpse, where it's all of these pieces of a novel taken apart, and some of them are polished, and some of them are basically messy notes ones would keep in their journal. Right, and we mentioned that parts of this are fiction exercises within the text. Mm -hmm. I think that that is an interesting pretentious writing exercise i can get behind that but having said all of that first of all the fact that i had to do so much outside reading to appreciate a book says something (laughs) and on the other hand coming back to what we taking that pin out for a moment i think that frisk on the one hand like i said is more successful than a lot of Cooper's contemporaries and descendants because he is a cis white gay guy writing about the emotional struggles of other cis white gay guys and that youth fetishism because, oh yes, did I forget to mention to your podcast listeners, he came, he was an LA writer who moves to New York in 1983. What hell? Mm-hmm. I must have felt like it followed him. Mm-hmm. So I, I get his intense despair and the the moments of the novel that work best for me are the ones where it's these characters reaching for this florid depiction of violence and murder that is not the incredibly mundane death they're facing every day and barely mentioning. Like, I think there's something to that. Mm. But on the whole, he's so in his lane that his... This fetishization of violence as harmless fantasy completely fails to account for... People who actually experience violence? Why, yes. You knew where I was heading. And you mentioned this shows up in the book with Pierre and Kevin uh, as much as he exists. And, like, that these are these are abuse survivors and, imp- you know, lower-income folks. They and it's ex- weird because Pierre is depicted as, like, having all the money he could want for anything, except that he's still doing subsistence-level sex work day-to-day with, like, Johns, not just He doesn't performing. even have regulars or anything. Yeah. There's <laughs> not a feeling of any... It's weirdly divorced from the feeling of threat that would be expected because he's so locked into the idea that everybody's sort of ignoring this violent, weird stranger in their midst, that he's not engaging with the fact that there are actual violent, weird strangers. The the most anybody has to deal with, really, is this constant threat of ennui. Except Joe. Except for Who Joe. gets stabbed to death. And the people that Dennis sexually assaults. 
And to Cooper's credit, from what I've read about his other books, adults are also a constant threat in, in terms of like intimate violence, which is a subject that not a lot of novels cover, but... But is also sort of a consistent issue amongst the gay community. The youth fetishism does tend to sometimes feed into questions of pederasty and where is the line and authors like Samuel R. Delaney have spoken and talked about how, gosh, I wish Nambla had existed when I was being sexually molested as a child because that would have made me feel okay. So this is like a persistent problem in terms of our society's handling of gay sexuality is that it's often so suppressed that there's no way to reconcile a healthy path towards adult sexuality without also integrating in youth trauma. Mm -hmm. Delaney's statements have been upsetting. Quite. Even if we want to... And even if you acknowledge that it is traumatic, it's also hard sometimes to decide where to situate your depictions. And even then, he kind of trips over his own feet because... Where's that gosh darn quote I took? Ah, here we go. You know, if we're talking about whatever, let the readers sort it out. I'm, re- I'm depicting all of these equally terrible people and or in a, a world without moral judgment by the author. Let's take it at that value. It still undermines itself because it is supposed to be that last scene where Kevin stays with Dennis is supposed to be this redemptive thing. Even for- Is it? Really? I thought the whole novel was was punking me by making me think Kevin was going to be murdered and then trying to shame me by being like, you're disappointed there was no murder. Even Frisk is about my boyfriend of the time, Mark, or about the relationship between Kevin, who's sort of based on Mark, and Dennis, who's based on me, and how the former's interest in Tolkien and sci-fi fantasy is the same as the latter's interest in murder. They cancel each other out. Kevin's ability to be close to Dennis proves that his horrific fantasies are really benign, like all fantasies. So That was not on the page. I'm sorry, I'm just... That was not on the page. Like, Kevin was not enough of a human. Yeah, he, he shows up briefly when he is assaulted as a child, and then at the very end, also but, briefly, and not in his head. There's, like, a little bit of dipping into his head with his obsessions with Tolkien, but that that wasn't developed as a through line. He wasn't handled as an equal because there was all of this focus and, yeah, fetishization of his mental illness as making him childlike and asexual and an object. You've got this autistic coded character being fetishized for his youth and beauty and childlike behavior. So, yeah, and it kind of at a certain point, if you don't succeed in pulling off your framing... Not everybody can be Vladimir Nabokov. The culture couldn't even take Nabokov as as Nabokov, and he was clear as could be in how repulsive Humbert Humbert is supposed to be. Yeah. When you're too... This is something I always tell my writing students is when you're the writer, you have this whole scaffolding that's backing up your writing, but you have to step outside of that and, and get other readers to engage with it. To understand what they're seeing without that scaffolding. If they don't see the underpinnings of it, if they're seeing only the front of what you're writing, you need that help to determine 
what the piece of writing is saying in isolation without your personal background holding it up. Right, because the reader doesn't know what you know unless you tell them. Which brings me to the last bit of background knowledge that I need to tell you, and I saved it for last because it's going to make you real bad. Mm-hmm. So you know the mentions of punk uh-huh. in the book. Uh-huh. And you know how you mentioned that um, it feels like the gay stuff is weird and not really central in the book? Mm-hmm. So first, a quote. But it was punk that took hold of Cooper. That was the most important, the first culture I felt aligned with without reservation. Disco, of course, I despised, and its grip on gay culture of the 70s and onward undoubtedly helped create the deep alienation I feel and have always felt from gay-centric culture. Now look. There's gay punk. There's lots of gay punk. But to specifically be contemptuous of disco has implications there's a real not like other gays vibe to a lot of his novels or a lot of his interviews not unlike chuck not unlike at all i swear to god one of these one of these ended with the mention that he has a lot of straight friends god uh-huh i'm sure he does I'm sure he is handing out the passes. It's, uh, <sighs> it's, uh, yeah. Like, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. The music just didn't vibe. That's why I couldn't be gay. And what the fuck are you talking about? And at the same That doesn't mean anything. It was too black for me. I mean, this is a good time to talk about the only non-mentioned non-white character in Frisk, isn't it? Yes, which is why I've pulled up this page. Okay, so, in 1996, Poppy Z. Bright, a.k.a. Billy Martin, wrote a novel called Exquisite Corpse. This work focused on a couple of serial killers and their desire to murder one dude's lover, as this person was referred to as a young Asian femboy and the way that all falls out. This character, uh, Tran, is extensively fetishized as the perfect victim. Like, this perfect crystallization of feminine-masculine juxtaposition and anestheticized victimhood. And just this object for these gay serial killing men in the time of AIDS to act out upon. And also I've read reviews of this novel from the time that were even more Orientalist, which just went full on like Asian flower. Woof. The chrysanthemum shit. So like it is explicitly an Orientalist thing. Which brings us back to what you were about to say. Yes, uh, so I had no idea that Billy just wrote fanfiction of that one tossed-off reference yeah. in Frisk. Yeah, which was? Is it the serial ki- No, which character is it? Uh, Pierre is talking to his director. That's right. Pierre's so- director. So Pierre is the porn star and sex worker. And Pierre is getting letters about murder 
from Dennis. And his director asks him to stay behind so he can eat his ass for extra money. At least he's paying him. That's right. something. And finds the letter and it's super violent and weird and gross. And so that kicks off the director to tell Pierre a story about how he used to live with this guy who was sugar daddying him, basically. And at one point he offers, listen, I will give you this X amount of money. You'll be set for life to make whatever films you want to make. I want you to help me make a real snuff film. And the director is like, uh, nah. But the dude was like, make a real snuff film about my Asian boyfriend. And, and that, this is not consensual, by the way. Extremely not consensual. They, and this is the only mention of race in the whole book. There, like, there is a character quote with an afro who is blonde and has blonde pubic hair and blue eyes. So later the director sees a bit of this footage of the dismemberment of this guy and is like, Oh, I recognize him. Turn that off. But also like, gosh, what could have been if I had been involved in that? How powerful. Truly. What an act of art. Yeah. There, Cooper talks about in one interview, he's a, he's a vegetarian, by the way, because- Of course he is. Uh-huh. That- an atheist he kind of regards taking a human life as basically the most powerful act imaginable kind of thing Mm. which okay (sighs) whatever the final thing i should mention about this book which i maybe should have mentioned up front but here we are now is that this is actually the second book in a cycle called the george miles cycle and george miles was a real dude oh was he like an ex or something? He was, uh, he was, he was like Cooper's first love and they were childhood friends and then they were lovers for a while as adults. George Miles had a lot of trouble with heroin that they were, that was very hard on, on Cooper who was trying to help him with that. And they kind of grew apart over the years and the books became like this letter he wrote to this idealized memory of this guy in his head. Hence why we've got that happening with Julian. And then some years into writing them, he discovers that while they had grown apart, Miles killed himself. Well into it, like... Like in mid-90s, you know? So, like, there is there is legitimate pain in these books that I want to respect, but also there's all this other shit. Yeah, like like all this other bullshit. Like, that's heavy, but also... Like, it's this almost... You can see where I ended up and being like, well, this is interesting, but also it still pisses me off because he's a very interesting dude in some ways. He uh, started a literary magazine, which his mother bankrolled. Of course. Mm -hmm. And like on the one hand, even though he could do this because he was a rich kid, he has seemingly used his position to, to an extent, try to platform a lot of young queer writers, which that ain't nothing. Young white boy queer writers? horses well I, there were at least some women on that list that i looked oh, okay. up yeah so but yes i'm sure that uh they were by and large white <laughs> see yeah he strikes me as this well-meaning dude who whose head is kind of stuck up his own ass and he is oblivious to the levels of privilege that he has and that inform and limit his writing because he seems to think about the way he writes he writes fantasy as this universalism when it is in fact very white and cis and moneyed Mm -hmm. like there's also it's white cis and high class 
because he's constantly writing these characters who can just sort of fuck off to places. Even when he's writing characters who are allegedly engaging in, you know, subsistence sex work and stuff, there's no real sense that material conditions are affecting their choices at any point. Like, he, he writes characters who work at Kmart or Sears, but there's no sense that they need to work at Sears. Right, they are just at Sears because that's a place where you can meet and talk to other people. Yeah. The frivolity of having a job, which he never had, so of course there- which explains the unrealness of it all. Yeah, it, it feels very plastic. It feels like all of these characters could just do whatever they wanted at any time, in a very strange fashion. So that actually explains some of the plasticity to me, if he's never actually had to deal with money as as a limiting factor. Like, that explains why Dennis, who needs his tools, can just fuck off and live in a brewery in Amsterdam. Or why characters can just fly over Kansas. Like, I was sitting here wondering, how are they zigzagging across the U.S.? Even in the 70s and 80s, plane tickets cost money. Money? Pish. Ennui. Yeah. He loves the French, by the way. French directors? Mm, big no into them. shit. The Devil, probably, is his favorite film. Uh, a Besson film. Yeah. Also, apparently, this is literally the worst place we could have jumped in. Uh, because his biographer, who, don't worry, his interviews? He has a biographer. Oh my, yes. <laughs> Your face is incredible. I'm gonna send you those articles just because they're a fucking trip. I won't read them. I'm busy reading the works of Vin Packer and Ann Bannett. Oh yeah, his biographer is the the person who sniffily derided people who had a problem with Ellis as obviously he's satirizing heterosexuality. No, he's just a misogynist. He's a gay misogynist. You can be a gay misogynist. That's a thing. They're they're quite common. There's a lot of them. <laughs> but so this came up because his biographer. biographer. I can't. I am unable to can. I don't have enough mason jars for this. Was drawn to Cooper's work after he read Frisk and asked, so how is that as a place to start reading your work? And Cooper, well, not really. I guess it's going into the deep end, so that's good. I like the post-cycle books better myself. So, <laughs> I don't have interest in- Honestly, good on Anil for choosing, like, the most fraught point to throw us in. That's so much better for our material, though. That's true. Like, that's a good one for this show, to just jump in the absolute deep end. I might it at some point pick up his 05 novel, The Sluts, because that is the book he wrote after he was conned by J.T. Leroy. Please tell the wow. listeners about J.T. Leroy. Do I have to? We can do it in brief. Oh, God. J.T. Leroy's not a real person. Uh, but J.T. Leroy wrote... This extremely graphic personal memoir about his life as a young queer trans hustler on the streets, on the mean street. A cis lady decided to write some some hot, sexy fan fiction about what she thought a trans boy would live through. And then she uh, had her sister-in-law pretend to be him at signings. And this was like the Bible of common perceptions of trans youth. For like a decade. Oh. It's a bad time. Yeah. The fact that he was conned. He had like an extensive phone mentorship with Leroy. And the thing is like this horrible woman who did this. 
as recently as like a year or two ago, she was attempting to slime her way back into public consciousness by writing blog posts about how he really, though, isn't JT Leroy just a part of me? Isn't that just a part of my consciousness? No. No, it's not. <laughs> the trans community has enough problems with representation. And also just teen sex workers. Uh-huh. Oh, there's many, many intersections here who do not need your help wealthy white cis lady she's blonde too of course she is karen go home karen go home the sequel to lassie come home <laughs> they're both bitches <laughs> so that's kind of interesting like it's about this hustler and the reviews he gets on a website and eventually is this even a real person or is it a moniker people take on and so uh, okay so it's like that sasha gray movie yeah, kind of. That that Soderbergh did. Kind of. Some some point I'm going to make you watch Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Very well. It's traumatic. I will watch this incredibly it's, traumatic thing. It's traumatic because Soderbergh doesn't know what he's doing. Oh. And James Spader, as always, is great. I do love to watch James Spader be weirdly fucky. So fucky. You so want, weird. You want me to tell you a fun thing as an apology? Is this a real fun thing or a cactus? <laughs> yes. Janet. So there's this exquisite interview where he dunks so fucking hard on Burroughs. Excuse me? <laughs> it's beg pardon? Was 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 Burroughs too good for him? Oh no, I'm going to read you this excerpt. Okay, but you have to read the asshole monologue after. The whole thing? Because it's quite long. <laughs> now, now... Are you going to bring me a routine with this? <laughs> One thing we will say. Burroughs, as an author, is a fuck ton more racist and misogynist than this book. Yes. And Orientalist. Okay, the first thing you need to know before I get into this. The LA Times blurb is not the first blurb on Frisk. Burroughs blurbed Frisk. Okay. And the blurb was, God help him, he's a born author. Okay. So this is an interview with a website called Book Slut. Good that, name. Right? And the interviewer says, actually, I had been hoping to ask you about Burroughs sooner or later. Did you know him well? No, not well at all. I talked to him at length once. We shared a boyfriend, which caused some problems between us a bit. <laughs> Ledge. But we weren't friends. We nodded respectfully at each other, and he was kind about my work, which meant a lot. Being compared so often to Burroughs when I started out bugged me a lot, though, because he wasn't an influence on my work much at all. I can imagine just getting tied to Burroughs, even as a means of praise, must have felt constricting. You said some critical things about his later work in all ears. Yeah, I was pissed off at the way he became a kind of transgressive celebrity and exploited himself so much. <laughs> But that was really anger at the people controlling his career. I just thought the whole quest for fame thing diminished the meaning of his work. Poor wee Burroughs. Poor wee innocent Burroughs. <laughs> but the later work itself, it has its moments. His uh, Nike commercial wasn't a favorite of yours then? I'm gonna look that up, don't worry. Oh, it's amazing. You haven't seen it? Wow. That's safe to say. And his appearances as the saint of junkydom in rock videos and stuff was the worst to me. I really hate heroin. Because. Right. Mm -hmm. It killed and ruined the lives of a lot of people I love. So it's a sore subject. And I thought it was irresponsible of him. Okay, here. I lied. It was the, the really juicy stuff is, in fact, from an uh, interview on a website called 
Slava Mogutin. Or, excuse me, that's the name of the website, but the interview is from Honcho Magazine in July of 2000. So the interviewer says, Your obituary on Burroughs seems bitter. Bitter? Well, I thought he sold out. It wasn't really about me. You accused him of using ghostwriters and stuff like that. But it's true. I knew Burroughs, his agent, my agent was his agent, my ex-boyfriend, Mark, fucked Burroughs all the time. He would go fuck him every other weekend. Dang, good job, Burroughs. I don't, it doesn't mean that his stuff is bad. It just means that he didn't write it all himself. Everything from City of the Red Light and on had a lot of help, more and more and more. Who was helping him. Uh, James Grauerholz, his secretary, it's not a big secret among the people who knew Burroughs. His people hate my guts. Burroughs was a pretty cool old guy, but it was the people around him who turned him into a freak. It just disappointed me that his work actually meant something. It was really outside, and then suddenly it became meaningless to me because every fucking band in the world was using him in their videos. Mm. How are those grapes? Mm. A little sour, a little sour. Oh shit, I found the quote I was looking for earlier. I mentioned how he's extremely not like other gays, right? Yeah, not unlike Chuck. Polinick. So again, this is from 2000. He's had 20 years since then. But Jesus Christ, the thing I'm about to read you. Okay. So the interviewer asks, Every new book brings you more and more recognition outside of the gay ghetto. Uh, Wow, interviewer. Do you consider yourself a gay writer or a part of a gay culture? Gay culture is not my world and has never been that world. The same with gay literature. Being gay was never a problem for me. It was always fine. Who cares? I'm a lot of things, and this is just one of them. He's one of those. I'd rather go out with a bunch of obnoxious, drunken, straight guys than with a bunch of fucking queens. Is that the word? Yes. Yes, that's definitely the word he used. No, he used the worst word? He used the F word, yes. The F word. When I go to West Hollywood, I feel like I want to kill them all. Wow. Mask for mask. No fats, no femmes, no Asians. There are vibes about this man. That's that's not even vibes. That's just explicitly. Uh, By the way, his biographer describes... His biographer. I will never. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying it just so I can see that look on your face. I will never. Describes uh, people talking about the gay content in his books as like the weather. Which is... Like... The weather. Don't you dare bring Mr. Baldwin into this. How dare. What? We're talking about the gays. Yeah, and don't bring Friday a, the 13th. Don't bring a gay who isn't ashamed of his community into this. <laughs> she said the phrase. No, fair enough. Fair you enough. invoked it. But like, that's what sits wrong with me about this at the end of the day is that, okay, you want me to consider this novel as not being situated in the queer community and the then queer around Then how the fuck am AIDS? I supposed to read it? Right? Like, it, that makes it a cipher. It makes it unreadable. There's well, nothing there if it's not there. That's not true. It leaves the violent fantasies of cis white men who feel as though they are... That they're exempt from any judgment as <laughs> long as they don't do things they're prosecuted for. If this is supposed to be a universalizing fantasy, excuse the fuck out of me, that removes anything that is interesting about this book as a literary work to me. Gosh, I wonder what my biographer will say about this. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I can't 
top that. We should just stop there. <laughs> That's a wrap. That's a wrap, children. <laughs> this motherfucker is two years younger than my dad. <laughs> oh, thank you, Anil. This has truly been... I haven't... Oh, it was like being in university again. <laughs> this really was a real workout. Like, a fun one. Uh-huh. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> this was something I would never have picked up on my own. We haven't done literary fiction for the podcast in... Is this the first time? I think it's the first time. I think even the stuff that borders on literary fiction is still in genre. So, like, sincerely, thank you. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. I always have a bone to pick with literary fiction anyway. Because I feel like what divides it from genre fiction is the operations of production rather than any actual content. You can say Margaret Atwood, it's fine. That actually wasn't what I was thinking of at the time, but she's an example. Like, she's one of them. Oh no, yeah. So because I spend so much of my time studying genre works, I miss out on a lot of stuff like this. Hey, this is why doing commissions is great. Uh-huh, yeah. <sighs> it brings us stuff that I just wouldn't have dipped into. Now I'm going to take a nap. <sighs> but did you enjoy my drink? You know what my I did? My piss and cum with asshole rim drink. I did. <laughs> and blood. Don't forget the blood. The blood is very important. The blood is compulsory. And that wraps us up. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our stuff by looking for Trash and Treasures on your podcatcher of choice. If you could leave us a five-star rating or review, it would really help us out. It's how folks find us and shows that, you know, people are listening. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash trash and treasures, where you can find Dorothy's recipe book for drunk book club episodes, uh, where she includes both an alcoholic and alcohol free version of all her recipes and where we do bonus episodes, which we're catching up on. Like we said, Dorothy's been reading 50 books for the, for, in the period of a month. It's been a lot. Th they're all good books. Like, I got to pick the books, but also that meant I had to do a lot of research because I have to explain why I picked all the books. Because, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. PhD studies are basically very stupid and about explaining why you know more about something than anybody who's actually giving you the exam. Sounds hellish. It's wild. If you want to tell us about your tragedy, tragic phd research projects you can email us at trash treasures pod at gmail.com we love to get email yes you actually can complain about your research travails we don't mind or you can find us Please on let us know whether or not you would like us to discuss those letters in public you can also find us on social media we are on tumblr at trash and treasures pod.tumblr.com and we are on twitter at trash pod give us a, a hello we'll give you a shout out on the show I want to extend a thank you this time around to Akila12902 on Tumblr, who has been extremely sweet at recommending our podcast to folks. Our, our hearts were warmed. Yeah, we don't get a lot of activity on Tumblr these days. So. No, because no one's on the Blue Hell site anymore. But Which us. is a good decision, but also I like the Blue Hell site. And mm -hmm. so it really brightens our day. To see you, like, stepping in and saying, whenever you see somebody who's talked about a thing that we've talked about, like, wrecking us. Yeah, it's... 
it really warms the heart. Like, it's you didn't have to go out of your way to do that, and you, and you did, and it was very kind of you. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. With that, we are finished and have to go drink a whole bunch of water. Remember to take care of yourselves, listeners. See ya. 